Support for WABE comes from the Community Foundation for Greater Atlanta. If you love Atlanta, you can invest in the big picture. Learn more at cfgreateratlanta.org. I'm Erlon Woods. I'm Nigel Poor. We're the hosts and creators of Ear Hustle from PRX's Radiotopia. Ear Hustle is a show about life inside prison, but it's not your typical prison podcast. In this next season, we've got stories about the objects people keep inside their prison cells. About residents in a women's prison who say they want to stay there. And the most beautiful prison garden. Erlon, I will never forget it. Ear Hustle. Stories about life on the inside, told by those who live it. Find Ear Hustle wherever you get your podcasts. WABE in Atlanta. Welcome to this Thursday edition of Closer Look. I'm Rose Scott. Now, coming up in just a moment, now that the nation has reached more than 150 million vaccination shots, how realistic is it in achieving herd immunity? We'll get a coronavirus national update with our good friends from the John Hopkins University. That's coming up in just a moment. Meanwhile, in related news, Georgia Public Health Commissioner Dr. Kathleen Toomey and other local city leaders are launching a new campaign to address Vaccine, whatever, hesitancy in Georgia. That's what we keep hearing. So during a press conference held, held early today, those leaders and Dr. Toomey talked about why they were doing this. Our biggest challenge right now is among uh, white, uh, white community, particularly in rural Georgia, that, that simply is, is not interested in the vaccine right now. And I think that this is one of the things that I would really engage you and I engage the mayors we need your help. I think that there may not be the full appreciation of how important the vaccine is for our state as a whole, for businesses, for us to be able to open up. Well, that new campaign is called It's Worth a Shot. Now, state leaders say the goal is to vaccinate 70 to 80 percent of Georgians and to reach herd immunity by the summer. Now, also at this press conference, Dr. Toomey addressed the state's decision to pause giving the Johnson & Johnson vaccine. Of course, this after public health officials reported six cases of the rare and severe blood clots in women who received the shot. It wasn't required. FDA did not remove the emergency use authorization, so we could have continued to use it. I made the decision we should stop and, and just take that pause in, out of an abundance of caution and, and to make sure that people feel very comfortable. But what I would say is, Look at the hundreds of thousands of people who have died of COVID. So many Georgians have died. So many Georgians have had long-term complications, including near-fatal blood clots or other things, that I think the risk of COVID, particularly someone who is older or has underlying health conditions, is much greater than one in a million. Now, an advisory panel from the Centers for Disease Control and Prevention yesterday decided more time is needed to review data on reactions to the vaccine. In the meeting, the panel agreed it would wait at least a week before meeting again to issue another recommendation. More than 7 million doses of the vaccine have been administered in the United States. And federal and state officials say the decision to pause Johnson & Johnson vaccinations will not hinder efforts to reach herd immunity. And we'll talk about that in just a moment. Now, here in Georgia, here are the numbers. So far, 4.9 million vaccine doses in total have been administered in the state. And also at today's press conference, Dr. Toomey noted that newly reported cases are remaining pretty steady in Georgia. The total number of confirmed cases since last year, when all this began, is 864,895. Sadly, 17,072 Georgians have died due to the coronavirus, and the total number of hospitalizations is now at 60,057. Some of you continue to email and say, why do we give these numbers? We think the numbers are important, and as long as we're in a pandemic, we'll give you these numbers. In other news, the Fulton County Board of Commissioners voted yesterday to approve a a resolution challenging parts of Georgia's new voting law. Now, the resolution directs county attorneys to seek possible legal challenges to parts of the law. Republican Commissioner Bob Ellis voted against the legislation, saying the county should be looking at improving its own elections operations 
instead of challenging the new state law. The claim that this law amounts to voter suppression should be seen for what it is. And I just think it's partisan rhetoric. That doesn't always agree with the other commissioners. Now the sponsor, Democrat Khadija Abdur-Rahman, says a state law targets Fulton County. I'm, I'm saddened that you see it as partisan. I don't see it as partisan. I see it as Fulton County being on the right side of history. Now, there are currently five lawsuits pending against Georgia's new voting law. It is unclear whether Fulton County will file one of its own. And finally, another Republican candidate is entering the race to challenge Democratic U.S. Senator Raphael Warnock. Navy SEAL veteran Latham Sadler made the announcement. How else? With a campaign video. Americans are fighting with each other here at home. And our country is being undermined from within by a broken political system lacking authentic leadership. That is not the American way. Sadler is a former Trump White House official and bank executive. Businessman Kelvin King, also a veteran, was the first Republican to enter the race. And stay tuned because there could be more candidates coming forth. It's election season. This is Closer Look. Support for WABE comes from the Community Foundation for Greater Atlanta. You can go beyond giving to impact. Learn more at cfgreateratlanta.org. The field of mental health counseling is growing rapidly, and Richmond Graduate University can equip you with everything you need as a licensed professional counselor while integrating your faith into your clinical practice. Programs are offered in Atlanta, Chattanooga, and online. Apply today at richmont.edu. That's R-I-C-H-M-O-N-T dot E-D-U. And Closer Look continues now here on 90.1 WABE. This is Atlanta's Choice for NPR. I'm Rose Scott. Soon after the World Health Organization declared the coronavirus was a pandemic, we reached out to the fine folks, directors, scientists that helped create the John Hopkins Coronavirus Tracker. And at the time, it was one of few reliable sources of data in the early days of the pandemic. Now here is Beth Blauer, Executive Director of the John Hopkins Center for Civic Impact. It is still pretty quite a small team compared to some of the other efforts around tracking um, that are happening um, in the press and in other places. Um, but we are very committed uh, to the work. And we also started to understand that it wasn't just about tracking the cases and the deaths, but mm-hmm. the work that Dr. Nuzo is really leading for us is around testing mm-hmm. um, and the impact that um, we know that testing is going to have on decision making and framing the, how the pandemic unfolds um, across the United States. And so uh, we've been trying to stay ahead of where we think um, data is going to play the most critical role um, and trying to really just give information not only to policymakers who have to make decisions and to health officials that are making those decisions, but to regular everyday citizens that are trying to decide, is today the day that I go out, go to the store? Do I wear a mask? What are the sort of personal decisions I'm making for our family? Um, and, and those are the things that we're, we're just astounded by, just the level of interest in the data itself and how it's framing that kind of decision making. That is what you call being on point. And a lot has changed since that very first conversation. And we do know at this time that it is estimated that more than 69 million Americans are, quote, fully vaccinated. That's about 21 percent of the population, according to Johns Hopkins. And if you haven't heard, public officials continue to warn the pandemic isn't over yet. So joining us now once again to discuss the path forward, we have Jennifer Nuzzo, associate professor and senior scholar at the John Hopkins Center for Health Security, and Beth Blauer, executive director of the John Hopkins Center for Civic Impact. Thank you both for joining me again. I really appreciate it. Thanks for having us. Yeah, thank you. It's good to be back. You remember that I think the first time we spoke and I called y'all rock stars, <laughs> your whole team? <laughs> How many interviews have you all been doing since last year? Uh, Jennifer, I'll start with you. Quite a bit, quite a bit. We're still waiting for the tour bus to show up, but thank you for your support. It's always good to be back to talk about the data. Do you ever, Beth, do you all, is it, the, the community relies so much on this information, and I've heard you all on so many different news outlets. Do you ever, have you ever just had a little bit of fatigue of saying the same thing or trying to answer all the same questions? Well, you know, we're approaching this work with the same level of urgency that we have since the very beginning of the pandemic. Um, we had 
we have more than a billion uh, users of the site right now. So there's still a lot of public interest in um, the information that we're sharing. And so we, especially now with the new vaccination data, are approaching it with the very same level of urgency. But yes, is there fatigue? Of course, I think everyone, you know, there's so much happening in our country right now. Uh, if you're not tired, then you're you're not paying attention. Has your staff increased at all since last year? How's it has been growing? Uh, we have added a couple of additional folks to the team uh, for data tracking, but not a lot. So we are still a very modest. We all still, I, I love the, the fact we are a women-led team. So we are continue to be a women-led team, including our data scientists and the architects that are building our data infrastructure. So I, I really want to call that out. But um, we still are, are very much uh, an, an intense work, work environment. Um, but we, we did get a little bit of relief, that's for sure. And with the dashboard, you all were expecting a, a vaccine. So we, everyone was talking about that. So did you have to, was it a large undertaking to add that into the current dashboard as when, when, it was, when the FDA approved that, okay, we now have these vaccines? And how much work went into that? Because then you also had to determine what metrics do we want to use for the vaccinations and making sure that you're going to get this information from the state. So how much work went into adding that into the dashboard? And, and Jennifer, I'll let you take that or Beth. Well, Beth's team really led that effort. And, um, you know, I think uh, there's the technical challenge of achieving that. But really, I Beth could weigh in on this. There's also the data challenge and the fact that, you know, the data that are reported from different states are kind of all over the place. And so a lot of work goes into trying to sense make of, of non-standardized data. Yeah, Absolutely. The, the same issues that we've seen uh, throughout the entire arc of the pandemic persisted with vaccination data, which was certainly disappointing given the runway that we had to plan for it. But states, again, um, uh, reporting things differently. And I think most significantly is that demographic data that has always been a lagging indicator for all data related to the pandemic. But on vaccinations, we still don't know who in this country is actually getting access and um, and and how they are, um, uh, what, how we're making uh, vaccinations available. And it's a problem. So with the data challenge, is it in terms of across, obviously, demographics in terms of sex and, and race and ethnicity? It, it, they may seem like just three metrics you all should be able to to gather from the states. What do the states say about the challenges that they're having? Do they give you an explanation? So the states, you know, have been from the very beginning very clear and explicit that they would love to have some more framed guidelines, standards around how they should report the data. And so they're doing the best they can um, with uh, what they have. That being said, um, there are lots of dependencies on vaccinations. We've got sites that are mass vaccination sites that are state-sponsored, that are at a pharmacy, that FEMA supports. So those are all different inputs. And if we can't get everyone reporting the same information about who's showing up to get these shots, and who's getting them, um, it becomes really difficult. And so again, looking towards um, uh, the federal government and those that can really create some uniformity of what should be reported uh, is really the, uh, the appropriate place for those kinds of standards to be articulated. I don't want to rope you all into policy if you don't want to get into it, but with the lessons learned just in trying to collect data as it resulted just in who was getting tested Shouldn't there have been some lessons learned, though, for the states or even for Washington? I know there was a new administration that came in that could have put guidelines in place for all the states to adhere to. Your thoughts? I think it's a key lesson. Yeah. I mean, I would like us to reflect on this event and kind of rebuild our data systems so that we don't have to go through this again. I totally agree. And I think... Um, you know, it's 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 not a technology problem. It is a public policy um, challenge where we really need to think about. And look, the 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 Biden administration is working incredibly hard in extremely difficult circumstances to get the shots out into the states so that they can land in arms. And that is by far the most pressing issue: is to get as many people vaccinated so we can get um, uh, life you know, a return to normalcy as soon as possible. But 
we will never get there if we're not creating equitable access to vaccinations. And the way that we create equitable access to vaccinations is making sure that all communities, especially those that might lean more hesitant, have the best information, that have trusted partners in the healthcare system that can help them navigate this process, and that we make sure that we're targeting all of those efforts to the right people. And without this demographic data, it's very difficult to do that. Well, let's talk about the data because as coming into the segment, and I talked about that it's projected that more than 69 million Americans are what's considered fully vaccinated. But in terms of those who have received at least one, it could be 150 million vaccination shots. So that could be misleading. And well, let me ask you, do do those numbers sound somewhat right to y'all? Yeah, I mean, it's been extraordinary um, how much progress we have made. I mean, obviously, the fact that we have some vaccines that require two vaccinations in order to be fully protected. And at least until yesterday, another vaccine that didn't, um, I think, is also another data tracking challenge. And to give you some sense of the, you know, the CDC is reporting today of the now more than 70 million people who are fully vaccinated in our country, they only have data for around 57% of those people. So just above half of those people, do we know who they are, the demographics of who's actually getting access to the vaccine? And that's the kind of finer point around, we need more information so we can be more targeted around who we're outreaching and trying to really overcome what's gonna be um, the more pressing issue in the coming days, which is making sure the demand stays high for the vaccines themselves. Well, and Jennifer, I'm going to start with you on this one, because based on what everything you all just said so far in our conversation. So when we hear this, this whole idea of reaching herd immunity by a certain time, if the numbers, if the data is challenging to collect and we're not sure just who we're missing, then how do you know when you've really reached that we're on this track to reach herd immunity? I, that can be really confusing to the public. Well, my concern is more that we need these data in order to understand where we have to do more outreach, where our uptake is flagging, where there may be access issues that if we could solve, we would get more people vaccinated. But in terms of, you know, the herd immunity question, I mean, we will know if we're on the right path, if we continue to see our hospitalizations and deaths remain low and not increase, and also continue to see our case numbers fall. Um, I think, you know, we will get there at some point. My hope is that we get there through vaccination and not natural infection. And that's really what the crux of this is, is trying to reach people as quickly as possible so that we can protect them with these life-saving vaccines before they get sick, um, you know, just being out in the community. Beth, you want to add anything to that? No, I totally agree. And I think that um, the, the more we can find the right people to talk to and make sure that the best information is out there, uh, the better. The voice you hear is Beth Blauer. She's executive director of the Johns Hopkins Center for Civic Impact. I'm also joined by Jennifer Nuzzo, who's the associate professor and senior scholar at the Johns Hopkins Center for Health Security. Well, let me ask you all this. And Jennifer, I'll start with you. Could this, what impact are now we've seen about young adults? You know, now we're, we're we're hearing that that 18 to or I'm sorry, the 15 to 24, we're seeing more new cases in that age group. And then you look at a state like Michigan, where youth and young folks are leading in terms of groups that are, are with new cases. And then we got the variants, the new variants all <laughs> mixed up in here, too. How much has that also been been a problem in getting data that you all need? And do you all collect data on, I guess, kid youth? Yeah, we don't have the breakdown of the the age um, with respect to the cases. And, you know, even that observation has been a little bit hard to tease out. We do expect that as we have vaccinated, starting with the older population, that we would see an increase in the percentage of cases that are in young people simply because we have been able to protect people who are older. But whether we're seeing a rise in infections among young people um, that's separate from just the fact that old folks, older folks are no longer getting infected is, is a little bit unclear in the data. Certainly, um, Michigan is looking that way. Um, we see hospitalizations rising in Michigan, again, from the state's data, not 
um, not national or, or, or um, data that we're, we're specifically collecting with respect to age. Um, but, you know, I am still very hopeful um, about the future in part because we know what to do to control this virus. It's the same measures we've been using for the last year. We just have to continue to do them for a bit longer. And now we have these life-saving vaccines that we can use to protect people. And I've been quite encouraged by the speed with which those are rolling out. And I expect we will see even greater um, levels of protection now that we're starting across the country to expand, to include people who are younger than 65, including 16 and up. Um, so that I think will be very encouraging. And as long as people show up to get those vaccines and we can get vaccines to people who can't show up on their own, I think we will see, um, you know, potentially in the months to come, a much different situation than we've seen for the last year. Well, Beth, when we hear this statistic that one in four Americans say they plan not to get a shot, does that greatly impact then reaching that, that milestone of herd immunity? So definitely a better question for Jennifer, but I will say that's a that's a data point that keeps me up at night for sure. And I think that it's it is one that um, I know um, that we've heard throughout the last several months. And that's really that one in four is the place where we need to be incredibly aggressive and strategic about making sure good information is, is out there so people feel confident about the process. They feel confident about the capacity of the vaccine to save lives of you know, and, and also to improve the conditions in the community. But Jennifer, I can talk to you. I, I'll defer to you on the. Yeah, Jennifer. Yeah, I mean, I am, I am really worried about it. And for simply because we have now a life saving vaccine and I don't want anybody else to lose their life um, to this virus. I take that number as a challenge, a challenge to the public health and medical communities to talk to people, to engage with community groups and leaders and to, to, answer questions that people might have that are possibly why they're answering in that way. I don't view that hesitancy as a fixed um, state. I've personally been involved in a lot of dialogues with people who would describe themselves as hesitant. And usually it's they have questions and they need answers. And so I think we as the public health and medical communities need to take it upon ourselves to try to engage as much as possible and to answer people and to you know convince them that these um, vaccines are gifts from science that are for, we're so fortunate to have. I mean, if I do want to really keep myself up at night, I think what would have happened if we didn't have these vaccines? Mm -hmm. And I say that as someone who has zero stake in any of these vaccines, I think it's important to say, because I think that's some of the concern is that people are sort of selling it. I'm selling it from the humanitarian perspective that this is the pathway to protecting ourselves and our families. Even if you're not as worried about getting COVID for yourself, you could get it and give it to a loved one who may quite suffer and vaccines um, can prevent that from happening. I have a question from a listener who wants to know, Rose, can you ask your guests, how is herd immunity that milestone determined? It's a good question. Yeah, so it's a really kind of tricky concept. The idea is that you reach a level of protection in a community um, where if somebody is infected, they're not really likely to encounter somebody else who's susceptible, and then you don't really see big outbreaks. You may see cases here and there, but you don't see big outbreaks. There's a percentage that gets thrown around, 70%. I'm a little bit kind of on the fence about these numbers because I actually think they're going to be community dependent. Mm -hmm. It's going to depend on how interconnected people are and how likely they are to encounter new folks in their networks. Um, but it also isn't just about vaccines. I mean, we know that unfortunately a lot of people have already gotten infected and have some level of natural immunity. So it's not so much about the pop percentage of the population vaccinated, though my hope is that we can achieve immunity through vaccination and not natural infection. Jennifer, is that 70 percent, 70 percent of the U.S. total population? Is that what you're talking about? Well, that's the number that gets thrown around. And I only mention that because people may have heard it, but I don't particularly look to that number because it's 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 a generic calculation and it doesn't really reflect the realities of of individual communities and how interconnected people are and how social and how many connections individuals have. Well, and, and I can understand, too, because I've I have folks that I know, folks that are in my family that say, well, if everybody else gets vaccinated, I don't have to. So I'm not part of the problem. 
That's what some of these folks say. I'm just, but that's a reality for a lot of people, you all. Yeah, I mean, and and yeah, I understand yeah. that thinking. I guess the the always the thing I say back to folks is that you know you never really know on an individual level if you're going to be that one person who's not in a risk group who will get quite ill, severely ill with COVID or worse, pass it on to somebody else. Um, you can't really roll the dice that way. And if you if you have a vaccine that really has, um, you know, very few downsides, um, it just seems like why wouldn't you sign up for insurance against that possibility? Are you all paying attention also to what's taking place in other nations? I think I read uh, or heard from the BBC that, you know, Israel may be reaching its herd immunity. Do you all pay attention to that? Yeah, we, we, we definitely collect uh, the data for the international community and we're looking at uh, places, you know, uh, that have um, high rates of vaccination and, and trying to understand what that means for the kind of public policy decisions that have been really guiding um, the way that we open our businesses and schools and the way that we sort of are regulating um, our response to the pandemic in Israel um, and a lot of the smaller countries. Um, we're also seeing in places like Chile uh, where they have done a really good job at getting vaccinations out there, but also seeing that there is still spread in the community of the disease um, at rapid rates. And so what does that mean for how we need to navigate this period of time where we're trying to get as many people uh, vaccinated, but they're still very much uh, active disease uh, in the community. And you all talked about in terms of getting more specific data in terms of maybe ethnicity and across different groups. Is there any other data that you all are having some challenges in getting that you still wish you could get more or you know, maybe not getting at all? Oh, gosh, so much. I mean, um, one of the things um, that we had kind of called for, you know, months ago was um, a breakdown of uh, race and ethnicity for testing data. I mean, we know that there are big disparities in uh, racial and ethnic disparities in the case numbers who's diagnosed with infection and in people who are hospitalized and people who die. But we don't fully know if there's a disparity in who gets tested for it. You know, and testing is an important intervention. If you get identified having infection early, you might be able to more quickly get care that could save your life. And so if we want to better understand the, the disparities we're seeing in the case, hospitalization and deaths, we also need to understand if, if people are having different abilities to get diagnosed with infection in the first place. Mm-hmm. Uh, Beth, I have a, another uh, question here from a listener who actually just told me this earlier that their concern is they just don't know enough information about the vaccines and they want it broken down to them. How's it made? Where's it come from? Uh, you know, what does the, the data sh- reveal in terms of its effect on maybe women who plan to get pregnant down the road or, or any of that na- nature? Do you think more information on that? I know the White House Coronavirus Task Force does two weekly updates. Um, sometimes Dr. Fauci can get really into those numbers and he can get really deep. Um, but this person said to me, I just want to know more about the vaccine. Does that say that maybe we're, the nation we're not doing enough in terms of disseminating information? I know we do our best here on Closer Look. Yeah, well, I will put a, 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 a plug in for the coronavirus.jeju.edu site. And there is a whole vaccine domain that has detailed information around the approval process or how the vaccines came to the market, how they're made, who they're safe for, um, and real um, uh, significant information that's rooted in science and best practice that is shared there. Um, there um, and, and there are also great resources on the CDC's website around the process, and the FDA can also help you understand the approval process for how the Um, the vaccinations are made. But I think the bigger point is the one that you're making, which is we're not getting this information into the community. It's really difficult for people who struggle with broadband access, who don't necessarily have a computer, who don't necessarily have access to information um, in the ways that you and I probably do to understand the impact. And so a lot of what they where they draw their expertise from is what's talked about in the community, which is why we need community stakeholders to really understand this information thoroughly and it really needs to be targeted to those populations that are largely cut off from mainstream sources of solid scientific information Um, and and we can't understand how to invest resources strategically if we don't have that demographic data 
give that website again for our listeners and we'll put a link um, on our on our website as well, the one you just mentioned. It's coronavirus.jhu.edu. And that's our, our main our main page and there's a whole uh, host of resources there just around the vaccine that c- can be really helpful. And as we wrap up, and you know, I always ask you all this question when we talk about biggest lessons learned from all of this, both scientifically and also personally, uh, Beth, I'll start with you. What has that been? We can do hard things. Uh, and I think, you know, whether those are sacrifices that we're making at home, sacrifices that we're making at work, sacrifices that we're making in our communities, We can do hard things. There is light at the end of the tunnel, but we're not quite there yet. And so I'm asking everyone to hang in there uh, to help make sure that you get as many people in your community vaccinated uh, and that we um, continue to maintain the norms that have been in place that have kept us safe. And uh, we extend them until we feel really great about where we are um, uh, reopening our country. And Jennifer, last word. You know, I've been involved in a lot of conversations with the media and different groups, questions about COVID. And I think for me, what's been really interesting to see is um, the commonality of these questions. I mean, we hear so much about how divided we are and how polarized and have different views. But if you really kind of peel back the layers of the questions, you see that they all have sort of a common source and a common concern. Um, particularly when I hear concerns about the vaccines. Um, I think it's great that people have questions. We just hope that they seek, um, you know, answers to their questions from credible sources. And um, it's been a real privilege to be a part of, um, you know, providing credible information. Um, But I agree with Beth, we can do hard things. And, um, you know, we're all sort of in this together, um, whether we want to be or not. I think the key word is credible there. Jennifer Nuzzo, an associate professor and senior scholar at the Johns Hopkins Center for Health Security, and Beth Blower, executive director of the Johns Hopkins Center for Civic Impact. As always, I say it, but I'll say it again. Thank you both for taking the time. Thank you for what you all have been doing and being on the front lines of all this in terms of data and information, credible data and information. Thank you both. Hang in there. Thank you. Thank Always you. great talking to you. Always great to talk to you. And Closer Look continues now. This is 90.1 WABE. As I say every day, Atlanta's choice for NPR. I'm Rose Scott. According to the American Institute of Architects, 17% of registered architects are women. And also, according to the 2020 National Council of Architectural Registration Boards, less than 2% of registered architects in the U.S. are black women. Now, there's very little data about licensed Hispanic and Asian women architects, but the consensus is there's a great need to bring more, and I know y'all hear this, this all the time, diversity, equity, and inclusion in the field. Yes, it is the familiar DEI ideology. And it was a focus of a recent conversation I had with Linda Nunnally. She's the director of Atlanta operations for Moody Nolan, one of the nation's largest black-owned architecture firms, and Catherine Bedette, an architect and the associate dean at Kennesaw State University's College of Architecture and Construction Management. Welcome to you both. Thanks for taking the time. Thank you. Glad to be Thank here. you. Let's begin here. Let's go back a little bit, and I'll start with you, uh, Linda. Um, who are your mentors in this field for you? Wow. My mentors, they've actually changed over the years. Right now, most of my mentors are my peers. Um, I work with an African-American lady that leads our New York, op- New York office, Latoya Kangdang. And I consider her one of my mentors at this stage in my life. Um, also, just my colleagues and my coworkers. I, I think we're continuing, we grow and continue and evolve in our careers and um, constantly growing and learning from them. Catherine, what about you? Who've been the mentors for you? You know, I think uh, when I look around, uh, a lot of the, a lot of the, women especially in architecture that have um, impacted me and inspired me are um, Cheryl McAfee. Uh, She's a a leading architect in Atlanta. Um, Nicole Hilton, she's younger than me, but I I still see her 
as a mentor in some ways because of the conversations that we've had. Um, you know, I could I could sort of talk about all sorts of people. I think uh, architecture is a very collaborative um, collaborative profession. So I could I could make a long list. <laughs> Among the the folks that you mentioned. And along the way, did you all see, and I'll start with you, Linda, first, a lot of women in the field and a lot of women who look like you or come from your community? You know, I'm a graduate of Howard University School of Architecture and Planning. So I was fortunate to go through the program where I did see a lot of diverse people. Mm -hmm. Um, Two of my professors, Barbara Laurie, and Catherine Prigmore were licensed female architects at that time. So I was fortunate to see those individuals early on in my um, education. And then even now I work for Moody Nolan, the largest African-American owned architecture firm in the country. And I believe 51% of our staff are women. We exceed industry standards for women of color as well. So I've been very fortunate in my career to be exposed to people of color and women of color. Catherine, what about you? Did you see a lot of women along the way? Hmm. Um, you know, I, I think uh, I think the women that I went to school with and that I've worked with stand out in my mind. Um, I, uh, as a student at Georgia Tech, uh, women, you know, men far outnumbered women, uh, but the women in my class and my program uh, stand out in, in my memory, you know, as being uh, vibrant, like a vibrant part of the, the environment. Um, I, I do remember I had, I had women professors mm-hmm. all the way through school. Uh, some of them that I was very close to, uh, even my, the very first time that I worked in an uh, architect's office, the summer after my freshman year, uh, uh, there was a woman architect. This was back, you know, should I say the date? <laughs> this was back <laughs> 1988. Um, <laughs> so, um, uh, uh, I just graduated from high school. <laughs> <laughs> I, I was the first summer and summer after my freshman year in college. And, uh, and there was a woman architect working in the firm. And so even, even just right out the door, somehow I was fortunate enough to see women around me in my as peers and as role models so coming into the segment when i mentioned those statistics i think it was 17 percent of registered architects are women there is a gap here there is some issue how do you correlate all of this Catherine? i'll let you go first why is that number so low and through the your gap lens is actually even more startling than um than you would think so African-American women make up 0.4% of the architects in the United States. Uh, There's 502 um, uh, African-American or black women architects um, that are listed in the United States. These numbers are always, you know, it depends Mm -hmm. on what list you're looking at, exactly when the data was collected. Um, But uh, but that's 21% of of African-American architects. And that that note that 502 that number is up mm-hmm. from um, 423 in 2018, but the percentage of all U.S. architects is has been consistent. Mm-hmm. Now I don't remember the question you asked. <laughs> no, I mean basically is is that this is this is not lost on you all when we talk about these statistics. But given what you all have just said about the mentors and being able to see people who look you who look like you all along the way. But yet we have these startling numbers uh, that we just talked about. Linda, any insight from you on why that why that gap exists? So I think a lot of it is being exposed at an early age. I mean, being exposed that architecture is even a possibility to start with. So um, I think that's interesting that um, it's a result of, of women being exposed at young ages to even come into architecture. But also I think it's interesting Rose, that I believe 85% of minority architects are graduates of HBCUs, which Mm -hmm. I find a very interesting statistic. And I'm a Howard grad myself. Um, But out of graduates of architecture, 
not all women go on to become registered or licensed. And part of that has to do with seeing women that seeing is believing, seeing is saying I can achieve that and being able to see women um, I think is important, but because there's been a lack in the profession, the profession, some get discouraged. Some don't have the mentorship in firms. Let's talk about that. Let's talk yeah. about that pathway. So someone coming out of Howard, you know, or Kennesaw State, what's the usual pathway then? Do you try to join a firm? Do you have to try to get an internship? Is it like when you're you know, coming out of med school and you got to get a, a residency? What's that usual career pathway like? Grueling would be my word. Um, <laughs> you have to get an internship, get the experience, get into a firm early on so that you can um, document your credentials. Once you document that, there's a rigorous exam for licensure. Um, in the past, it used to be nine exams. I believe now it's down to six exams. Nine, and it's nine like exams? Taking the bar six times. In the past, yes. We're getting six. better, right, Catherine? <laughs> yeah, we're getting better. <laughs> we're getting better, but still, <laughs> I think last year, the average, the average was uh, 12.7 years to licensure. And, you know, uh, if that's the average, you know, there are people who are taking a lot longer, um, to become licensed. So it's, it is a long, it's a long path uh, that, you know, you, there are three requirements, education, experience, and taking the exam. And so you have to do all three. It takes a while. I just want to be clear that I heard you. You said it can take on the average of 12 years before you be licensed. Is that what you said? 12.7 years. Now that includes education, okay. experience, taking the exam. So that's from the start. Mm-hmm. It can you think, take a lot longer. You think this can be discouraging to some folks because of the, as Linda put it, grueling? It can be. And Rose, full disclosure, I am one of those that life got in the way of taking my exam. So it can be discouraging. And if you don't have those people with you to encourage you and support you, you can walk away or just not get licensed or registered. Um so I think there there's value to you saying that. Absolutely. Mm-hmm. Well, then let's talk about solutions, if we can, because we're all about solutions on this program. Uh, Catherine, I'll start with you. Knowing what you all have just told me, then what are you offering or what do you see as a different implementation or a process to, one, keep people engaged and motivated and to get them closer to, you know, that that getting licensed, if that's what they want, what do you see some what are those some uh, what are some of those solutions you see? Um, yeah, I could you know I could say there are, there are a lot of solutions um, that we can take action on. Um, I can I can kind of talk uh, from two fronts. you know I'm an associate I'm associate dean um, uh, of a college that has an architecture program and I, I'm an architect and associate professor of architecture. So, so I can speak from that front. Um, I also served as the 2018 president of AIA Georgia and AIA is our professional organization, our main uh, professional organization um, for all architects uh, in the United States. Uh, there are 116,000 architects in the United States and um, like I think there are 95,000 of them that are members of the AIA. So it's, mm-hmm. it's a wide ranging group um, or should be. And uh, uh, as president of AIA Georgia, uh, one of the sort of one of the actions that I saw as being important was um, starting this conversation and I led a development uh, for it a national resolution for the organization itself, for for the AIA, um, that called for the AIA to create and implement a plan to uh, actively identify and prepare and recruit a range of ethnically diverse women to pursue elections and service at the national level of the organization. Mm-hmm. And um, that was a national campaign. I had a, a, a large group of people working with me on that, providing input, constant input, and campaigning. Um, and this was really a call to action for the organization itself to foster a way for 
ethnically diverse women to be in leadership positions, to be visible, to be role models. And um, it, I think this is, this is really important in multiple ways, not just, you know, yes, because the role models are important, especially for our students and for future architects, right? Mm -hmm. You have to be able to see, um, you see that, see, um, you know, someone who looks like you as a part of the profession and just a natural, normal part of the environment. You have to see that uh, as, an, as a role model and an example. But I think also at the leader, at, at the level of leadership, we have to have diverse input. We have to have people who have very different ideas, experiences, backgrounds, expectations, and we have to have those differences come together. And that's where you have really great decision-making. <laughs> um, so it's, it's important in many ways to me. Linda, through your lens, solutions. Yeah, um, interesting enough, our theme for moving on this year is be the change. And I think part of being the change is to be intentional. And I know we use that word a lot, but really be intentional about what we're doing to change the face of architects in this profession. And part of what we're doing and what I'm doing is really how do we support young people in our culture as a firm? How do we support programs that Catherine just mentioned? Um, how do we go out in these communities of color or in front of women and show them that there's an opportunity and give them that opportunity to help utilize their talents? Um, it takes a village. And I was thinking about that earlier. It really does take a village. It takes both profession. It takes teachers from middle school through high school to college. It takes the community and businesses as well to really see this change come. Speaking of when a change is going to come, to borrow my favorite singer, Sam Cooke, when you think about this industry and this field, and we talked about the statistics, so let's give a, a let's look at a reasonable timeline. Let's say in five years, how do we move that number, those numbers that we talked about in terms of what is your hope those numbers will be in between in terms of the gap of black women and, and women in this field. Linda? Well, we mentioned there's 502 black women right now. So I would, I mean, the hope would be to see a rapid increase in those being licensed. The hope would be to see a rapid increase of those coming into schools of architecture programs. Um, but also within the profession, seeing women in more leadership roles, women owning firms and running firms, women um, leading board meetings and firms. I think there's still room for progress in that area as well. Catherine? I think, um, I, I think, you know, if, if I look at, uh, if I look at leadership roles, if I look at um, students entering into architecture programs and graduates entering into the profession, we have um, we have we have the talent there, right? Mm -hmm. uh, so there is leadership talent that can immediately um, become visible. There is, you know, we have. Um, we have students coming into our programs and uh, record numbers, really, uh, uh, you know, we're recruiting students. Yeah. Um, so I think, you know, finding ways to clearly identify inequities. What, what are, what are the, you know, understanding uh, when you, when you look at the intersection of gender and ethnic bias, mm -hmm. What, what are those things that are impacting uh, women of color in our profession? Identify those inequities and then take action to resolve those problems. Well, let me ask you all this, because as, as women, you all are taking the lead on this. But how important is it also for your male counterparts and those who are in positions of, of hiring or Whatever, whatever, whatever position that is, or I don't want to say authority, but those in position of hiring, that they also adopt this only if they truly believe in it. Because, look, let's be really clear when we talk about diversity 
equity and inclusion, DEI, because that is the buzz acronym right now. Diversity looks different for different firms and different environments. So how do you make sure that this isn't just solely on the women to improve this, that it really takes the whole industry? I, I mean, I think it's, it's holding people accountable. I can give you an example. There was a, a panel recently um, that featured no women of color, and it was in the industry. And a colleague of mine said, hey, wait, stop. This isn't right. We need to fix this. I think there's a constant reminder until at some point it becomes instinctive, but unfortunately we're still missing it. Mm-hmm. So it's to me being that squeaky wheel and, and sharing with colleagues and folks what's right and what's not right. Hey, let's look at this. Let's really see what we're doing. So I, I would say it's being intentional about it. Catherine, you want to add anything to that? Yeah. I, I I completely agree with that. And I think just reiterating, um, you know, whenever we get the chance, you know, if you, if you think about equity as a principle, but I think of diversity as a benefit um, and it, 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 it's selfish for the profession, really. Um, it's, <laughs> it's very selfish, but when, you know, there's this kind of wonderful thing that happens when you get human beings together and they communicate they inspire one another and that happens through differences. And the more we understand the creative process and how we inspire one another, genuinely like spark ideas. Mm-hmm. Uh, and when we understand that, you know, we have to realize that for architects, that's vital, right? That's absolute, that's the air we breathe. We have to be creative. We have to have inspired solutions for problems in real context Mm -hmm. and so understanding the benefit understanding that this is this is really something that um uh it 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 is uh, equity is a principle but also when we achieve it um we're we're all benefiting from that Catherine Bedette is an architect and the Associate Dean of Kennesaw State University's College of Architecture and Construction Management. And also I spoke with Linda Nunnally. She's the Director of Atlanta Operations for Moody Nolan right here in the area. Thank you both for taking the time. I really appreciate it. Good information. Let's see where we are in five years, eh? Thank you. Thank you. I'll be registered. Thanks, Rose. And that's it. What a lovely conversation. That's it for this edition of Closer Look, which is produced by Grace Walker and LaShawn Hudson. Our engineer is Kevin Rinker. If you missed any of today's program, it's always online at wabe.org slash Closer Look. And of course, Closer Look weeknights at 7 as well in our podcast. So subscribe to wherever you like. Also, programming note, tonight at 8 o'clock, I will be the co-host for America Are We Ready? So now all the rest of the world can hear me yapping, but that's okay. Stay tuned to 90.1 WABE, Atlanta's choice for NPR. I'm Rose Scott. Hi, it's Terry Gross, the host of Fresh Air. We bring you in-depth, long-form interviews with actors, directors, musicians, authors, journalists, and more. Listen to our Peabody Award-winning Fresh Air podcast from WHYY and NPR. Local, state, national politics. WABE and NPR have the coverage you need. I'm Jim Burris, host of WABE's All Things Considered. Whether it's on the air at 90.1, streaming online, or connecting through our mobile app, WABE keeps you on top of election 2024 in what's sure to be a pivotal year in politics. And for candidates and ballot information, visit our election hub at wabe.org election 2024.